Welcome to Getting Work to Work, a weekly podcast exploring the creative and curious world of work through monologues and conversations with creative entrepreneurs, storytellers, and changemakers. Today's guest is curious about everything and often asks, why is that that way? Throughout his career as a scientist and chemist, Christopher Reddy has found a way to channel his curiosity into action as he studies marine pollution. In this conversation, Chris explains how science actually works over long stretches of time and the role uncertainty plays in the work. We talk about how Star Trek and Carl Sagan's work inspired his own scientific career, effective tools for science communication, the importance of building local relationships, and the profound events that change our lives. Throughout the conversation, we discuss Chris's book, Science Communication in a Crisis, an insider's guide. Not only is it effective at explaining the why and how of science communication, I believe it is an excellent resource for any creative professional who wants to learn better ways to communicate what they do. Show notes and links to all the good stuff mentioned in this episode can be found at gwtw.co slash 692. I always love having scientists on the show because I get an in, an interesting answer to this question. But what are you endlessly curious about? Oh, God. Everything. I mean, that's my problem. I can't even drive a freaking car. <laughs> uh, I look at everything. I mean, it drives my wife and family crazy, you know. Um, I mean, it's great. It's a curse, a wonderful curse. But, you know, I... I want to know when that house was built. I, in many respects, I wish I was an architect, right? And I'm always curious about why the house was built that way and when the addition was added. And, um, you know, that's one of the reasons why I, I literally don't own a car because it's just so consuming. And, um, but yeah, um, I do struggle with the, uh, why does that that way? My daughter is very into collecting beach sand. So we live down the street from the beach. She's extremely, I mean, a beach class. And it, it takes every core muscle of mine not to expand about why that is why. She's a delightful little cherub and she actually would deal with me. But yeah, yeah, um, <laughs> it's lovely. It's a good gig. I love that you're curious about everything. But as a scientist, you've obviously learned how to channel that curiosity into action. Like, how did you go about that? I don't know. You know, somewhere along the line, I am so restless. Mm -hmm. Um that I need, um, I need some sense of resolution in what I do. Um, and for a scientist to say that, that's actually pretty, pretty unusual. Um, but I am an, you know, I'm an action person. I mean, I don't sleep, I don't stop moving. And I, it's the same way I'm with science. You know, I like to work on stuff and one way or the other ends up being resolved a little bit quicker. Yeah. When I read your book, I really got that impression that you were all over the place, not in terms yeah. of like your thinking, but in terms of, you know, just you're, you're going all the time. Yeah. Oh, by far my biggest, biggest challenge in life is no. I mean, I tell that to all the junior scientists. I was like, <laughs> you're going to get to a point in your life, the hardest part of your day is saying no, because, you know, being a scientist, if you're at a great institution like I am, um, you know, it's, it's an infinite candy store. I mean, literally, you could glutton yourself like Willy Wonka, you know. So, how do you stop eating? I don't just don't fall into the chocolate river. No, 
No, no. I think I'm closer to Mike TV. I think okay. I'm somewhere. I'm certainly not as good of a kid as Charlie. Oh, good old Mike TV. Yeah. <laughs> My mother wasn't like Mike TV's mother, though. Well, well I, I grew up in a very strict household. <laughs> they wouldn't have tolerated that stuff at home. <laughs> and now we're dating each other, you know, and how old that's we are. Right. Yeah, that's good, though. Yeah. In in your book, Science Communication in a Crisis, you mentioned Star Trek often throughout it how does science fiction inspire your career in science both then and now you know um for me uh, i was a kid growing up in the 70s and um my family life was very i i have very fond moments of science because of my mom (laughs) you know my mom for whatever reason you know didn't end up going to college till later and, and um but she was a fantastic scientist and she was a sci-fi. So we actually saw Star Wars when it was in the theater. Oh, wow. Like, we went on the afternoon. But the other really bonding experience with me was watching the original Star Trek episodes with all my brothers. So I have four other brothers and that was a big deal, you know? So I think certainly the fascination and connection with my mom, but also the sense of endlessness of opportunities. And, you know, I mean, Original Star Wars episode is very difficult to beat. I mean, John Luke Picard and all the rest of them are great, but there's nothing even remotely close to the original. And honestly, that is a very key part of my life. Mm. Was it the endless exploration or was it optimism? Yeah, I mean, somewhere or another, I think... I mean, sure, you know, Captain Kirk's a little campy and, you know, they played the stereotypes a little... But at the end of the day, um, they made scientists and engineers both diverse in many respects, kudos to Gene Roddenberry, um, on a lot of different platforms. And I think that it captures kind of the teamwork component and the novelty. And I, I think there's a lot that resonated with me in terms of science and engineering and an opportunity to make a difference um in a positive and meaningful manner that had actionable opportunities to to uh insert science um in everyday life and so yeah it's interesting i was shocked to learn about carl sagan and how academia approached him throughout his career because i think about that bridge between science fiction and science with him as well yeah, I mean, I'm far from a Carl Sagan uh, historian, but I went through and read all his books years ago, and I've had the opportunity to, um, you know, spoke to people who knew him well. And so, um, but, you know, Carl, you know, I say Carl was ahead of his times. I mean, he was a big creative thinker, um, and you could see how he could make some people nervous in the very buttoned up world of science in the 60s. He's a big creative guy and extremely well-spoken and had the street cred to make big creative ideas and justify them. And I think that made people nervous that he was comfortable being creative and he had the firepower to back it up. (laughs) I love that. And when you have that, you're a formidable beast, Mm -hmm. but he also didn't have tenure, you know, when he was at Harvard and, you know, he got denied tenure. Um, but he ended up at Cornell and I think had an incredibly impactful, wonderful career. Just died too young. Yeah. When you look at his immense creativity, like what do you take away from that for yourself? 
Well, I mean, we all suffer from imposter syndrome, right? Every one of us, right? So you look at him and you go, how did he ever do all of that, right? Mm-hmm. And, you know, that that's always a big challenge for any scientist when we put ourselves up to somebody else because we all think they were hopeless. <laughs> um, but I tend to think, you know, what impresses me the most is, um, you know, that just how seemingly comfortable he was from, you know, um, you know, writing research proposals and publishing papers to, to being on Johnny Carson and also, you know, in, in producing, you know, an incredible TV show. And those are wide ranging, challenging um, skills. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think many people quite understand probably how difficult it is to be on TV with Johnny Carson, um, <laughs> especially when you're a scientist which is depicted as kind of last pick in gym class, kick me sign. Mm-hmm. And that guy did great. In in many ways, do you do you put him as a prime example of effective science communicator? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I I do. Yeah. I mean, I, I think I do because I believe that he did it because it mattered to him mm-hmm. and that it was personally enriching. A lot of times I, I believe in academia that scientists are told that they need to communicate science. They have to make their work relevant, blah, 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 which is a whole different topic. But they're told to do it because there's an expectation that it's checking the box. Whether or not that box is properly calibrated is a different story. Mm-hmm. My argument is, is that you communicate science and you spread your knowledge so that it's personally enriching. Yeah. And I think that what Carl was so effective was that he was genuine and, you know, wanted to do it and was good at it. And, you know, the, to be honest with you, the, the amount of courage to do what he did um, and knowing the level of scrutiny that he was being put under in the academia and other routes um, is astonishing. I mean, that is a tremendous amount of courage, but also a tremendous amount of self-confidence. Well, and I can't help but think about where we're at in today's world and how, you know, broadly speaking, you know, scientists don't have the most favorable view, unfortunately. Yeah. Uh, and 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 I think what your book does a really good job at doing is explaining, you know, the scientific method, the process, yeah. how science actually works. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think one of the biggest challenges that science has right now uh, is. Uh, is the internet and an iPhone. Mm. Um, you know, there is this expectation now that any answer that somebody wants, they're going to type it in, even by audio. Mm. And there's an expectation that they get the answer in four seconds. They want it to be certain. And then once they read it, they believe it's correct. And that is just counter to how science works. Science is much slower. It's incremental. It's not necessarily a house of cards, but it's certainly bathed in some uncertainty, which is the very reason we do it. And so science has a hard time in a time of, of the way in which information flows. And because people are just not patient. No. And, you know, they want to be, they want their thirst to be quenched. But you know what? You know, sometimes you have to wait a little um and i think that's one of the biggest challenges for science is that um you know everybody wants to be certain in four seconds a good scientist bathes in uncertainty and is willing to wait it out years decades careers to get to that answer and so it's just a disconnect nobody's right or wrong but it's just an exception that 
just because you can get Wikipedia about how many people were at the Red Sox stadium last night or wherever, Fenway Park, that doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to get an answer to vaccines or whatever in, in 10 seconds. Yeah. With that much certainty. I love that focus on certainty too, because I, I think there's, there's a popular phrase that kind of mixes with that need for certainty. And it's, I did my own research. Oh, geez. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And so, you know, two questions are buried in that for me. The first is, how do we make sure the research is legitimate? Yeah. And second, how do we make sure we aren't succumbing to confirmation bias? Mind you, I'm a chemist. <laughs> uh, then my skills in terms of trying to think how people's brains works are, um, you know, I think one of the bigger challenges is, is that, uh, you know, I would do terrible on Jeopardy. I don't like, I don't like facts, you know, all that stuff, but what you're trained to, and you know, people sometimes diss PhDs because they're stupid or whatever, and you know, they don't know the answer to that we're trained to think, you know, a good scientist is a great skeptic. Right. And that you're willing to relearn and be accepting and understanding and that it's okay not to be resolved. And when I hear folks be so definitive on something, it makes me nervous because uh, really, will you be so when things are uh, uncertain, uh, folks who are slamming their hands down with certainty are usually not well informed or maybe being misled. Now, whose fault is that? That's a different story. Um, but a, a good scientist is is both a good skeptic, but also being willing to be swayed. I love that. I I think what that says to me is the importance of, I guess, slowing down and and going at the rate of science. Yeah, yeah. I mean, absolutely. First of all, I will tell you that as a chemist who, who, you know, watched COVID both as in, important because I have a family and a, and a life and I'm, you know, worried about humanity, but I also watched it as a scientist, um, the quality of the science, engineering, mental, you know, health professionals, responders. I don't think we gave all those folks enough credit. I think that folks in America, um, we were extremely lucky to have such dedicated folks going to the ER every day. And the amount of research that was done so quickly, and you know, maybe there was a little bit more uncertainty and maybe some noise in the results, but it is just astonishing to me to see the level of science that was done during COVID, that the vaccines got rolled out. The vaccines were rolled out and then they put in a monitoring program to watch not only how the side effects were, but also the efficacy. I can't underscore to you the significance and how much of a fanboy I am of the whole <laughs> COVID response. Yeah. Um, and, you know, that is just the way it is, is that the best we will get is the speed in which COVID worked. And wow. it is, I wish we would talk more about the victories and some two bit, you know, and I hate to get so mad but it does get me mad that we're monday morning quarterbacking about one decision um that they learned somebody learned about in the newspaper but the point of the matter is is that monday morning quarterbacking is extremely difficult and a complex um never ending you know changing event but one of the bigger challenges that folks have and i have it too is that we are often not privy to all the knowledge that's being used to make a decision Right. 
And, you know, so people get really frustrated. Well, why aren't they doing this? It's so obvious. I did my research. Yeah. And he actually, they may have done their research, but it's based on the premise that knowledge of A, B, and C is available, but maybe A, B, C, D, and E is available and it's just not been put into the everybody's calculus. And, you know, uh, time is short. One of my favorite chapters, Chris, was where you describe the different stakeholder groups, mm-hmm. goals, needs, and challenges. And it was an excellent reminder that our message often needs to be communicated in several different ways. I mean, you you showcased eight different groups just in that chapter alone. Yeah. That was yeah, shocking I, to me. Well, you know, the reason why is, and I, I have gotten tremendous amounts of science communication training, both formally and informally. And, you know, and one of the things that's always bothered me is that the you know somebody goes a graduate student or a scientist and they go to science communication training and they get told for three hours all the things that they're doing wrong, and then they do this mock interview or they tell them oh you got to memorize make an elevator speech which is you know talk about what your science does in ninety seconds, and that's okay it's a good start it's a driver's license but it's certainly not going to make you a Formula One racer, but the point of the matter is is that there is no single elevator speech. Right. It is always an ongoing dialogue and, and it is a dialogue and a conversation. And ultimately, when you can nourish your audience is having an understanding about what they need and when they need it and what their value system is. And that is one of the biggest challenges scientists have is that they assume that if you don't have a Ph.D. in a lab, then you're in that other pool. And yet there's zillions of different pools. And <laughs> yes. You know, you have to be nimble enough and figure out a way, but that means you also have to listen, right? Because you have to understand what the value system of that person is or figure it out as best as possible. And um, yeah, I mean, I think, you know, personally, the hard ones, I think, are, I always think there's three different types of public. You know, there's somebody who has been impacted by an unusual event. There are folks who just want to be difficult for whatever (laughs) reason. And then there are folks who are curious. Yeah. And, um, you know, the hard ones are the people who come up to you and say, when can I, you know, there's an oil spill happen. When can I start feeding my family again? And that's no longer a game about how many papers I can publish and how many awards I can win. Um, but on the flip side, it's really hard to try to not use Excel graphs and PowerPoint to tell this difficult person who's contentious why they are maybe being misinformed. Yeah. Um, but then you have the curious folks who are, you know, relatively easy if you're in good fighting shape. Um, <laughs> but yeah, yeah. Um, and I think that draws back to the idea that a lot of times folks think of science communication and communicating science as not using the metric system. But there's so much more than language. It's really about culture. And I talk about it. If you got off the plane in Paris, Right. And maybe you had taken six years of high school French, so you'd be okay. Um, You still wouldn't mesh. Right. I mean, you might be able to know what the language is and how to use the right words, but that doesn't get you to a point where you're culturally smooth enough that you can have the most meaningful, nourishing outcome. Maybe you won't, but you need to be mindful of that. Yeah. When I think the examples that you give about Congress, for example, where if you aren't dressing the part as well, you yeah. know, you're not respecting, you know, that culture. And and yeah. I think that was a really good example for me just to kind of be like, right, okay. You know, that makes so much sense. 
Yeah, no, I wasn't. I mean, I've I've been on the hill and and done the dance up in you know um, in official hearings, and but I happened to be at another day where I was supporting a friend of mine, and one of the speakers showed up with tight jeans and you know Italian leather sneakers, and I was like, <laughs> oh god, oh no, you know whether you like it or not, especially the last couple of years is not, you know. Traditionally, you know, when you go to the either House or the Senate, there's a lot of decorum and there's lots of rules and things have gotten a little swung one way right now. It's a little bit more contentious. Uh, but when you're in the at the Hill, they play the rules and, you know, you, there's a certain dress code and a certain way of being effective or, or actually just trying to be a net equal. You know, you definitely want to leave not being a net negative. And I happen to have seen some of my colleagues be net negatives. And they were unforced errors. Wouldn't have been hard to put a suit on. Right? You could give an absolutely horrible six minutes, but you could have at least been had a good suit on. <laughs> right. The guy was a handsome guy. He would look good. So one of the statements that I think I laughed out loud when I when I heard when I read it was a crisis is not the time to exchange business cards. Yeah. <laughs> and, and like this is true in both the science community and pretty much every community because I found that. When you're in that point of desperation, you know, you're, you're, you're like, I got to get out there. Yeah. But instead I, I like what you were putting out there of building long-term relationships instead. Yeah. So I, I, that phrase is in mind. That's um, former commandant to the United States Coast Guard, Admiral Thad Allen, who, you know, was just absolute hero in um, the aftermath of Hurricane Katrina and the Deepwater Horizon. And, um, you know, if you're ever going to have another uh, guest, you would definitely want to get that, Alan. On, uh, but but the point of the matter is is that um, just in many aspects of life, you don't want a bunch of one single dates. You want to build these sense of relationships. And I tell junior scientists all the time, they think that if they're not being successful, unless they're not on Capitol Hill next week or in the Washington Post, and my take on it is to be local and start building and exchanging business cards and building relationships on a local scale. So, you know, maybe someday your research would, you know, touch upon the fire department. Well, you should try to have coffee with somebody in the upper administration, you know, let them know who you are, um, let them tell you what their job is and what, you know, what matters to them. Um, I believe that having a local conversation and knowing your players at a local scale is by far the most meaningful way that a scientist can get into the game. It's also the stakes were a little bit lower. Um, and I truly believe that if you had somebody on the fence who wants to, you know, about a contentious issue where science has to come into play, I think your local college professor who has an appreciation um, for their audience who happens to live down the street from them and knows what matters to them and what is significant culturally and economically to their neighborhood is going to be much more effective than a talking head um, from the other side of the country with a different accent. So exchanging business cards, especially on a local scale, uh, is by far, the uh, I think, one of the most meaningful ways we can get science in the right hands so we have the most meaningful outcome for life every day in the earth. Yeah. Well, I love the story that you told too about early in your career how you know you built that relationship with the journalist who in a sense saved you from yourself. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's just the, the late Peter Lord. He was an environmental writer at the Province Journal Bulletin and 
I had made this discovery that was big enough of a deal to get me on the front page of the Department's Journal Bulletin. He asked me how I made this discovery. And I, at one point I said, because I'm a better scientist than the EPA scientist. I was 26 years old, not yet my PhD. And I thought I was on the top of the world. Right. And I thought I was on the top of the world for 10 years mm. about that. And yeah. then just by chance, I was actually teaching a class about communicating science. <laughs> and I had Peter come down with all my students in tow and I'm, you know, Mr. Smart Shot and his Peter and Peter's an old friend of mine, yada, yada, yada. And then Peter goes, whatever you do, don't do what Chris did. And, you know, he read, I don't even remember what I said. Yeah. And what was great was, is that Peter didn't run all that stuff because he knew he would hurt my career. And that wasn't part of the story that he wanted to write about. And so we often as scientists and other folks, you know, pick on the media, but in that case, and I had no relationship with Peter at that time, you know, he understood that if he ran those comments, it would not have been a, a good outcome for me. And I think it would have detracted from the story that he had. Um, so yeah, I made a lot of mistakes. And thankfully there's a lot of good people out there who were Wanted to look past it. Yeah. <laughs> I think that was the other point where I laughed out loud too, because I'm just like, oh my, you know, that's awesome. And it's like, I can, I can, I think we can all relate to that in our life when we're in our, in our twenties where we think we know everything, but boy, what we don't know. What a jerk, an yeah. absolute jerk I was. I mean, just, I, 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 I can tell you where I was sitting uh, when I had that conversation, I don't remember exactly those words. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, I was very lucky that there was a kind, thoughtful reporter who I truly believe wanted to write about the science. And if he had made it about me saying I was smarter than somebody else, it would have detracted from what he considered successful. And so I think that's really a good opportunity to see about how things can be mutually beneficial. And that's that's just a really good point, again to reiterate what you said earlier about building those local relationships across all stakeholder groups, across, yeah. you know, everyone. I mean, like the building that you drive by and you're like, how is this made? Like figuring out who made it and going to connect with them is, is a prime example of that. I think that if you're sincere, I tell people this all the time, if you're sincere and you want to have a phone conversation with somebody who may appear to be more important or busy, whatever you want to call them, you would be surprised how most people would write back. I think people want to meet. I think that as long as you are respectful of somebody's time and what they want, and um, I, I tell folks all the time, swing the bat, just do it, just do it. As long as you are doing it respectfully and mindful, but um, if you're honest and candid and passionate, swing the bat, try to build relationships Worst thing that's going to happen is somebody doesn't write back to you. I flashed back to a documentary I watched over the weekend when you said that. Uh, it was about Judy Bloom. Oh, really? And, oh, yeah. yeah. Just the how many kids wrote to her. Yeah. And and it changed their lives in a lot of ways. And I I love that. You know, I I always tell students that you play the student card and reach out to your heroes all the time. And uh, I like what you're saying though, like student, not student, scientist, non-scientist, reach out to people and tell them what you think in a respectful manner. I think that if you're real and I think, you know, the people, if you want to talk to the people who matter to you, um, if it really is going to make a difference for you, then they'll respect that. Yeah. Um, 
I try, I get a lot of emails and I try to write back. If I get them from a, a high school student or an undergrad or a grad student, I will commend them for writing the email and yeah. that you should always do that. Uh, and they're always very good. Yeah. Because um, it's self-selecting, right? If you're willing to write an email, you're probably on the right trajectory, but how do we get more folks to do it in a meaningful way? that um is enriching and i think folks have to remember that as a scientist you would be surprised if you're open-minded how you might learn from a high school student yeah absolutely um i had a a relatively junior reporter asked me a question about a study i was working on i didn't know the answer the next day literally when we walked to my lab wanted to kind of think about getting her master's degree I said, oh, you should work on this. It's a really good thing. I just you know, started thinking about it because somebody asked me the day before, she ended up getting her master's degree out. Oh, wow. It wasn't me. It was a reporter <laughs> asking yeah. the question. Oh, that's really cool. So, you know, it's not a sense of just altruism that, you know, this person's responding, oh, thank you for doing that. I think scientists have to recognize that um, communicating outside their peer group or maybe in different circles uh, could be a benefit for them besides just the sense of rewarding, but also that being open to learn. As you mentioned earlier, like me- memorizing facts just doesn't do it for you. Oh, yeah. What role does storytelling play in science communication? Well, I mean, everybody's got their thing, right? I mean, um, folks have to figure out what their strengths and weaknesses are, right? And so, um, I don't know what my shtick is, but I, I, you know, I stick to it, right? I mean, you know, a little self-deprecating, uh, a little wacky on the uh, metaphors, and you know, you run with it with a certain sense of gusto, right? Um, and you just go with it, right? If you feel you're comfortable, but there are other people who might be just fantastic writers who, you know, can just write great 140 or 280 degrees. I am the worst social media. I just can't do it. Right. So everybody's got to find their sweet spot and then, you know, be willing to learn, but also to have a certain sense of confidence that um, you think you're doing a good job. Yeah, I like that, too, because I think sometimes, especially in the creative world, we kind of we kind of take all of the ways to do something and funnel it into the right way to do things. And story is one of those areas where it's like, you need to tell stories that matter to your audience. And it's just kind of like, yeah, which audience, A, you know, and, and, you know, what is the content of the story? You know, like. That's that's right. And it, and I think it's even harder, you know, I, I always think that, you know, it's also even harder when um, you don't have the body language, I think. So it's, it, I think these folks who do these podcasts, like what you're doing and that you're effective with just audio is astonishing to me. Mm. Right. I mean, it is so much easier, uh, to, to communicate when you have body language. Right. And I I think these folks who don't have the luxury of seeing what the response is are just so talented. And I wish I could do that, you know? Um, I won't do an audio interview with a reporter anymore because I need to see them. Um, and they're all doing well, but I just need to be reminded of that, you know, so we all have to play to our strengths and figure out where we are. But I think scientists can all make, and I think creative people as a whole have to find, it's a balance of finding your sweet spot, but then occasionally willing to go outside, um, your comfort zone, right? So you're, you're building your base of talent and then, you know, 
trying a little bit different flavor, but not so that it's too risky. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I also appreciate how you recommend scientists partner with non-scientists like graphic artists and, you know, multimedia producers and, and, you know, everything that you're not good at bringing them in so that they can bring their talents to your message. I think that was a really important message as well. I'm a firm believer that no single scientist is ever going to save the day. Right? I mean, you know, you can be the most brilliant scientist, but you have to figure out a way if you, you know, if you're hard bent on communicating it to a way and, you know, clock is ticking or a meaningful hot topic way, you're not going to do it by yourself, yeah. uh, at least effectively. I mean, you have to find a team, graphic artist, copyright, whatever it takes. And that's not selling out. That's, trying to develop an opportunity where you have the most best outcome that you leave your audience full and nourished. And, um, you need a team of cooks to make that meal. And, um, I mean, I can't make graphics. And I think if you start to look like Johns Hopkins during COVID had this amazing website, I can tell you for sure that none of those MDs who were creating a lot of that content we're right in those making those images. And so you can even see that it's there all the time. It's just not spoken out loud. Yeah. And, um, you know, maybe you don't have the money for a graphic artist or whatever, but I think a lot of times there are, again, you know, going on Reddit and all these faces, Hey, I'm trying to make this image. You'd be surprised how willing people are to help you when you're creative and passionate and sincere. And, and I think when even like in the, if you're an expert, but you're willing to say, I need help. Yeah. I mean, that, that to me is, is a powerful statement. Yeah, no, I, I agree. And I think it helps, you know, that there are studies out there, right? You, you know, you get a scientist to partner with a graphic artist to make a, or a poster for a recent, you know, kind of a science fair for, for scientists and, you know, and then, you know, one doesn't, and then the other one does. And you ask the scientist afterwards and they say, oh, my God, I had a great poster, but I learned a lot about my research. And that's the kicker, right? It's not just making a prettier picture. It's that working with people with different backgrounds and interests and skills is going to lead to a net benefit for you. And, I, and if you're open minded to it, um, you will learn. Well, and as someone who works with a lot of different people in different industries, it's amazing what I learn when I'm working in industries that I know relatively nothing about. And I think that makes creative work better when you, when you work with people in your same industry. So it's like, I would advocate for the, you know, from the other end of the, you know, equation here of saying as, as artists, we should be partnering so that we can learn as well. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, it sounds like an after-school special, but it is incredibly true, <laughs> right? That, you know, it is. I mean, it's like conjunction, junction, all these things are, you know, what it is. But at the end of the day, if you get smart, talented people who are willing to have a give and take and add a lot with, with an ultimate goal of, a, you know, a great outcome, it works. You know, this concept of diversity across so many other layers and platforms works. But you have to have the time, you have to have the money, you have to have the willingness, you have to also be willing to be told that you're wrong, right? And, you know, uh, you know, that's hard sometimes. Yes, it is. It is. I appreciated the candidness 
that that you shared in your book, specifically the aftermath of Deepwater Horizon and how it affected you, like losing 75 pounds, massive burnout. And and I think that it was a good reminder that scientists are people too. It's a yeah. good reminder that we don't know how things are affecting people. And I'm just grateful that that you wrote that because I think burnout is real, whether you're a scientist, podcaster, graphic artist. How how did you bring balance to your life after that happened? Yeah, I started working on the Deepwater Horizon in 2010 and um, just about did it, you know, every day. You know, it's I, I, I don't want to dismiss, you know, uh, drug abuse or, or alcohol abuse, but it's, you know, when you're in the chase, it's a dick dink, you yeah. know, and, you know, we're competitive people. And, you know, that um, when you get things that are so high profile, you know, um, so I got myself involved in a lot of things and, you know, um, you end up being very busy for a long time. And um, I was not right for, I don't think I saw a daylight of a normal self and I'm not being hyperbolic here into 2019, nine years. Wow. And I will just say that a neurologist got me on the right track. It's not post-traumatic stress disorder, whatever, you know, that I don't want to dismiss that, but you know, there are profound things that change your life. And, you know, you give up a lot of things when we're on the hunt and I gave up a lot of stuff and I burnt stuff and, you know, you change and, you know, you get yourself in these little worlds and then suddenly your world is getting pierced. And then when you tie your identity to your career and your career gets roughed up, then that is just the worst. And, you know, that happened to me a couple of times where I tied my career too closely to my identity. And, you know, I didn't get a big research grant funded on the, you know, funding Deepwater Horizon in 2015. I went out of my mind. You know, I was like, how could they not be funding me? Yeah. Right? I'm so good of a scientist. And, um, and in fact, uh, that um, frustration actually led me to write the first two chapters of this book. It was literally the only thing that could get me from, I was going out of my mind, yeah. but it also started me to start to reflect that if you make your job and your career, everything about yourself, yeah, it's not a good way to go. Cause sooner or later there are bumps and there are roadblocks and there are hazards and um, you need your other self to help you through those times of your uh, career. And on the flip side, your personal life, right? Personal life might not be going too well, but your job is. So, you know, you take advantage of the good stuff to get you through the bad stuff. I mean, I'm sorry that you had to go through that. But on the other hand, I think we have to go through those moments where we learn how to separate our identity from work. Yeah. I mean, I, I thank you. I mean, listen, I live in a nice neighborhood. I, I always get paid. You know, I have a very loving family. I have three kids, a wife. Um, I did, you know, I, I did have challenges, um, and I'm, but I'm lucky that it never really affected me to a point where, you know, put my family in harm's way or anything like that. But, um, yeah, I do think that, you know, some, I will tell you that, um, I, when I wrote this book, I, I had a lot of pieces and I hired an editor to help me put it together. Absolutely fantastic. editor, a guy named Chris Pitts. 
And there are parts where I'd say, well, you know, this happened. And he'd say, well, why? And I was like, ah, I don't want to talk about that. <laughs> and, you know, there are three or four times in that book where I was like, oh, I don't want to talk about it. It's too much, you know. And he bullied me into putting those personal things in there. And I'm really appreciative that he did because I think it made the book a lot more real. Yeah. It made it a lot more painful for me. Um, but again, I, I don't want a telethon for me, you know, <laughs> buy my book, but don't feel too bad for me. Yeah. Uh, but I do think I have this firm belief that everybody likes to read People magazine, right? Like they all want to know a little bit about somebody. And I think that Chris, my editor, really was smart to get that personal touch into a book um, because it, it, it added a certain, it kind of dismissed the stereotype. So I'm incredibly grateful for Chris to do that um, because I do think people want to know about what makes people tick. Yeah. Especially, I, I believe all people, but mostly I think in areas that we don't understand. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I'm going to tell you, it's so true. And in part, one of the motivations that he talked me into it was he was turning it back on me. And because maybe because I think I'm kind of macho or what I'm, you know, whatever. <laughs> Uh, I can't stand all those stereotypes of the last pick and gym class scientist and, you know, the kick me sign and all that stuff, because I think it's bad for science. Yeah. Right. I, it makes me mad. So I'm so happy that we were able to, to personalize me and so many of my, like, I, I do not know many scientists like the ones that are depicted um, you know, in the movies and TV. I don't know that, you know, I mean, certainly they're having fun, they're riffing and, you know, that's entertainment. But I, I do think that um, scientists are interesting because a lot of folks don't get to talk to them. And when they do, um, if they can be relaxed, they'll find out that they're not Sheldon from the Big Bang Theory. There's not, <laughs> right. not, I know, I mean, yeah, a little quirky, sure. But that level is just, it's such extreme that, um and this might sound crazy. I don't think Sheldon is good for science. <laughs> I don't think he is. Yeah. Um, somebody might say that about Mr. Spock, but I would take offense to that just simply based on how good Star Trek was. Right. Um, but no, I don't, I don't think those stereotypes are good for science. Yeah. And um, because is they're Walter, not true. Is Walter White good for chemistry? Do you know, I couldn't watch that. Hmm. For whatever reason, I could not watch more than one the first episode of it and i don't know what it is i'm i'm a little bit of a snob when it comes to science i might have been conflicted about what he was doing maybe i was a little too high yeah. uh too, too <laughs> uppity but i couldn't get through it. i want to yeah um uh, but i haven't watched it but yeah i mean this but nevertheless uh walter white is not sheldon cooper yeah and you know Maybe not the best role model, but <laughs> no. certainly highlights. Um, and I mean, I, I, you know, it's interesting though, but because um, Walter White actually did show just what, uh, um, you know, that how chemistry, you know, is so connected to everybody's lives. And I, I think chemists in many respects um, are really well positioned to talk to people every day because it's so part of our everyday lives yeah. and it doesn't necessarily have to be related to pollution. Right. You know, it is so ingrained in our lives that a chemist can are really well positioned to nourish people who are interested in science. 
What would be surprising to most people when it comes to thinking about chemistry in their daily lives beyond pollution? Jeez, I don't know. I would argue that um, vinegar and, and baking soda is a very effective way to use as a cleaning agent. <laughs> and I, I, I'll tell you why. When you when you mix vinegar and, and baking soda, you make carbon dioxide gas. And um, if you mixed it in a bottle a week beforehand and then you used it like Windex, it wouldn't be that good. Um, it, you know, you end up having something that's not effective. But when you mix carbon dioxide, when you mix vinegar and baking soda together as a cleaning medium, you do a lot of things. And one of them is you take advantage of the gas that's getting evolved and it helps you actually clean better. So, you know, uh, just the simple idea of the timing of when you mix your baking soda and your vinegar to effectively clean your sink is connected to, to that point. Oh, cool. Maybe I'll go clean after this. Uh, yeah. Um, uh, <laughs> you know, it, it is a problem for me. And I, I don't want to sound, again, like crazy, but I, I think it's just so fascinating that just how how much chemistry is in our everyday lives. And I think it's super cool. I love that. Well, Chris, as we wrap up our time together, what wisdom would you like to leave with the audience? You know, I don't want to sound like some type of valedictorian speech or the commencement speaker, especially in time of graduation. I am a firm believer that um, if you want to make something happen, uh, you would be surprised at what you can do. But you have to be willing to be patient and you have to be willing to take some knocks. I think more now than ever, we need to be patient, but also be willing to have um, time points to have self-reflection about whether or not you should stop be doing something or doing a course correction. So that whole idea, oh, you can do anything in the world, wide world, yada, yada, yada. Yeah, maybe, but I would tell people to be mindful that they are more capable than what they can do. Um, but also be mindful that there's hard work to be had and that it also is important for you to take and self-reflect and be willing to stop or do a course correction. Um, I think humans are tremendously talented people and uh, we're capable of a lot. And ask for help. Always ask for help. Worst thing that's happened, somebody's going to say no. Well said. Well, final question for you. Yeah. What, what book, podcast, or resource is blowing your mind right now? I am reading, and I always get the titles wrong. Um, it's the, um, it's the, it's entitled. It came out a couple of years ago, and I'm going to get the title wrong. Um, it's called "The Last Man to Know Everything," mm -hmm. and it is written about one of my all time. And I think I got the title wrong. And please forgive me, the author who wrote this, but it's a biography of Enrico Fermi, who was an Italian-born um, physicist slash chemist who you know played a critical role in of um back end of the um, 20th century and the critical role in the manhattan project and nuclear um aspects and he was brilliant and um died way too young but what fermi was really good at and this is where everybody could use his skills was he was the one and scientifically he cut to the chase faster than everybody else because he was willing to consider big things. So he would say, you know, somebody would ask, you know, well, how many, you know, how many golf balls could you fit in the ocean? 
And, you know, you get a lot of people out there literally taking a measure and then, you know, thinking about all this stuff. And you'd say, well, golf ball's about this. The ocean's about as big as, you know, 26,000 bathtubs. Boom, 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 boom. And he would get a number. He was really good at scaling big wow. problems and getting an answer without uh, a decent answer for the time that gets needed. And um, I just find that fast. So, you know, I don't know how true it is, but when they were doing the Trinity test, which is before they, they sent off the atomic weapons um, to Japan, they did a test in, in July of 1945 and it was in Trinity, uh, the location was Trinity in New Mexico. And, you know, they were trying to wage how much um, the yield from the weapon. And he, you know, dropped big pieces of paper and saw how far the paper blew out. And that's how he estimated um, the yield. This is, and so he was the last man to know everything. And he wow. died way too young at 53 or so, my age. Um, so I've been freaking out reading his book, but it's just so good. When he traveled, he put his name down as Henry Farmer. <laughs> and so when I'm playing with my kids and they ever we make up a name, I always call myself Henry Farmer. And that's about as close as I'll ever get to a Nobel Prize. Is using Enrico Fermi's alias. There were so many memorable moments in both Chris's book and in this conversation. I hope you enjoyed it so much that you go out and pick up his book. I want to reiterate his message, though, of patience and self-reflection, not just for scientists, but for creative professionals, too. The world as we know it is moving faster and faster, and sometimes it just seems out of our control. So why be patient? Is expertise irrelevant in a moment when computers can create for us? And I think the more we can sit with tough existential questions and also not expect immediate answers, we are going to be able to discover a point of view, a vision, if you will, to communicate that is not based on impulsiveness or the shiny objects distracting us from what's truly important. And I hope that you're going to spend some time doing that in the future. I know that's something that I'm going to do. Until next time, may creativity and curiosity fuel your life.